Good morning. I see some new faces out there. Welcome. Um, I'm Michael Mattis. I pastor Saltbox Church. I also want to look into the camera and say welcome to our online community. As I understand it, I think we're not only live on the Facebook platform, but the YouTube platform today. So welcome. Come on. And I think, um, well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I am in uh, Exodus 7. Before we jump into Exodus 7, though, I was, uh, I'm sitting over here, and I had a couple of um, old friends, old acquaintances from high school, um, walk in. And it was funny, because I had this moment um, where it's like, uh, what I thought of, as I saw, there was, there's two different um, sets of people that I saw from, from high school. I've lived in this city, and the downside of having been in this city for so long, I wasn't born here, but I came here when I was one, is that, you know, there's a lot of people that know you since you were like, yay big, or yay big, you know what I'm saying? Okay, so uh, these people walked by, and I literally thought, oh, man, I had more. How'd you know that? Who said that? Who called it? Somebody called it. That was good. I had more hair. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. My insecurity all of a sudden jumped up. Now, go with me here just a second. In fact, why don't you say to me, Michael, it's not about you. Come on, Connie. Now, I got news for you. Guess what? It's not about, so I want you to say with me, it's not about me. Ready? One, two, three. It's not about me. Now, let's all say together. Let's actually close our eyes and say, it's all about you, King Jesus. Ready? One, two, three. It's all about you, King Jesus. Come on. And that's why we gather. That's why we're here. Okay. Good to laugh, though, huh? <laughs> Okay, we are in Exodus 7. We have been um, just sort of tracing this book of Exodus. In many ways, it's been a character study on a guy named Moses. That's exactly right. And I hope that I've introduced you to some of the great failure in Moses' life. And the reason I want to introduce you to the great failure in Moses' life is so you can actually have hope that God uses people like Moses and people like me and people like that's exactly right. So, so the idea here is that we actually get in and we can begin to understand the way the transformative power and presence of God works in our lives. And somebody say, he's not finished with me. Come on, I am so grateful. I am so grateful. Okay, so we are in, um, as we open up um, Exodus 7, so we're going to read part of Exodus 7, we're going to read a portion of Exodus 8, and then we are going to launch into kind of the murky, dark waters of Exodus 9 and 10, okay? And Exodus 9 and 10 are all the plagues of Egypt. Like, it is like, oh, it is, it's challenging, it's actually big, it's, it's murky, it's dark. So here's what I want to do. Um, we're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pull out maybe uh, three or four sort of major uh, things that I think the Lord would have us focus on this morning. Um, but the first uh, almost um, undergirds what happens with the plagues. And if you can't understand who God is, then you're certainly not going to understand what he's about to do. Because it's a little bit mind-boggling when you look at the plagues of Egypt, all right? So that's number one. The second thing is we're going to look at God's um, wrath. And I think people go, oh my gosh, God's wrath. And, and yet what I want to do is I want to help define God's wrath in the context of his mercy. Ooh, somebody's on it. Come on. So God's wrath is bound within the bookends of his mercy. 
And a lot of times, especially if you're not a Jesus person or a, or a Bible person, you haven't been around the church a long time, you will tend to focus on the wrath. And some of us as Christians even get a little religious. What happens when we get religious? We start focusing more on the outside. We sort of neglect matters of the heart. And then we certainly don't stand up in front of the church and say, oh, I got insecure because I am now. I do stuff. Go with me there just a second. I do things like that. I'm going to say things like that because I want to awaken you to the fact that God is not nearly so concerned about what's going on out here as he is with what's going on in here. And the essence of what the Spirit of Jesus is actually after, as we even walk through the Scriptures, is to um, so grab your heart and your very fascination that you begin to turn your attention onto Him. You begin to yield your heart to Him. And even the reason that we come together uh, to, to do worship, in some ways it's kind of funny, we come together and sing, right? Where did that come from? Well, in the Old Testament, God instituted that people would come together and they would actually sing or shift their fascination and focus onto King Jesus. That's the idea. That's the whole, um, even the call is to actually have lives that minister to him. Can you believe that? Professional uh, ministers, professional pastors or or worship leaders or whoever, you know, it's like you, you think, oh, their job is to minister to people. No, no, no. First, it's to minister to King Jesus. And, and the way they get all um, amok is when they begin to think that your job is to minister just to people. And all of a sudden, there becomes this uh, seductive fascination with what's going on out here. And then you begin to neglect matters of the heart. So this is really the point, is, is digging deep within matters of the heart. We're going to talk about God's uh, second. So, so first, who God is as sort of redeemer. Secondly, um, his wrath found in the bookends of his mercy. Uh, thirdly, there's a Moses transformation that happens here that is uh, it's world class. I hope we can get our hands fully around it. Um, and then fourthly, we're going to take a look at counterfeit gods. Okay? All right, so let's do it. Let's jump in. Um, this, is a, this is a fair bit of scripture. It is definitely into the deep end, so brace yourself, and here we go. All right, so before we start reading in 7.1, I want you to flip your Bible back, or if you're scrolling, scroll back to Exodus 6.6. 6. Well, we read this last week, but I want to read it again because it's the springboard into Exodus 7. Exodus 6, 6, 6 says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. So this is God speaking to Moses. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you. Say that. I will redeem you. This is one of the, um, it's, it's one of the most uh, magnificent and beautiful words in all the Old Testament. And, and what this, it's, a, it's a, actually a Hebrew word, um, gal, and, and what it, it's, it's G-A-A-L. And, and what it means is that God is um, reaching in and he's rescuing. He is, um, he is buying back. And so if you were here for this uh, little series we did on the book of Ruth, we, talk about, we talked about the kinsman redeemer. You remember that? So it's the same word, gall, here that is actually used, but it's, 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 it um, illustrates how God reaches in and goes after people and brings them back. So kind of the, it, it's, a, it's a dual idea that's introduced about God um, sort of having this next of kin relationship where he's responsible to go and get you, but it's also that he's going to pay equal price um, or fair price to bring you back. So, so what you have to understand here is as God begins... Um, to actually release his wrath, if you will, on the Egyptians and on Pharaoh, is all of that has to be contained within the bookends of his mercy, which is he is sovereignly reaching out to rescue a people and say, I'm going to bring you home. 
all right? I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to bring you home. And we're even going to illustrate how God in his kindness and grace gives opportunity for Pharaoh and the Egyptians to repent because he doesn't want anyone to perish. All right, here we go. So from, from Exodus 6.6 6 onward, I would actually say that this idea of Gaul, this idea of um, God redeeming, becomes the absolute sort of um, undergirding of the rest of the book of Exodus. In other words, God is continually saying, I will pay whatever price, I will go after you, I will cross whatever I need to cross, I will, I will welcome you and go rescue you, and I will bring you home. So you can't even understand the plagues unless you can fully understand this beautiful Father's heart of God going after and bringing back his kids. It's this never stopping, sort of never giving up, like he just never, never backs down. We were talking to some friends of ours, and um, they had lost a loved one recently, and the loved one um, on their deathbed, right before uh, they transitioned into eternity, they knew Jesus, but right before they transitioned, they actually talked about um, the Lord graciously taking back to, some, to, the, to their childhood, to some things that happened in their childhood where they had gotten bitter in their heart. Isn't that beautiful? Here's what I want to illustrate there. This is this God who is, he is never going to stop. As long as you are living, as long as you are breathing, as long as you are getting up in the morning, he is going to go after you, he is going to pursue you, and he is going to seek to bring you back to him. If you even look from Genesis to Revelation, I would say it's this, um, I would actually use a funny kind of phrase, but I'd say it's a cosmic um, exodus that stretches from, e from, from Eden to New Jerusalem. So what do I mean by that? A cosmic exodus. Now, what book are we in? Exodus. What did, remember when Jesus was transfigured on the mount? Who stepped out of eternity? Moses and Elijah. He, they stepped out of eternity because they're not dead. They've just transferred residency. Okay, So they step out of eternity, and they actually talk about Jesus going to Jerusalem to deliver the people. And that word is Exodus. That's right. So it's this cosmic exodus that actually begins in Eden. So if you've ever read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you have Adam and Eve, and this lie sort of enters that God doesn't love you, God doesn't care about you, God's not interested in you, and, and Eve reaches up and takes of the fruit, she eats it, then Adam, and then there's this fall and separation, and God actually has to come in, and do you remember what, what he did to clothe Adam and Eve? He, he killed an animal. They didn't even know at that point it was a sacrifice, but blood was shed. Okay, so he shed blood in order to clothe their shame. Interesting, you talked about shame this morning. And then they are sent out of the garden so that they don't eat of the tree um, of, of eternal life and live forever. Okay, he did not want them to eat of, of that tree because then they would be sort of condemned into this hellish separation from God forever and ever. So you have the book uh, of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, which is this cosmic exodus, and it ends in the last few chapters of Revelation with a place called New Jerusalem. I know I'm throwing you into the deep end. Now, New Jerusalem, it's like Eden restored. Okay, So it's the heart of God to go after and to actually bring people home. It's, it's this, it's this um, eternal uh, sort of journey to bring us back into perfect relationship and to restore us into complete unity with him. Does that make sense? So that is that, that you have to understand sort of this, the, the heart of a father um, and his heart, this, this, that he is always trying to bring his kids home. So... <clears throat> 1 John 4, 19 says we love because he first loved us. So it, it literally is a, it's our response sort of then to this loving 
God. We can also juxtapose that with 2 Peter 3.9. Um, he wants everyone. He's not, he's not, I'll actually read that for you. Let me flip there quickly as we set all this up this morning. Um, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So as we go into reading about these plagues, I want you to do two things. I want you to begin to envision, number one, that God is going in and he is rescuing his people. He will do absolutely anything. He will stop at nothing to bring them back to him. Make sense? Number two, I want you to go into it, and I want you to fully get that the plagues start um, easy and light, but then they progress to more and more destruction and difficulty. And the reason they do that is because it's representative of the heart of God that, oh, if Pharaoh and his people would just repent, just turn back to him. So let's ask a question. If Pharaoh and his people would have relented and repented and let them go, would God have relented on these plagues? Yes. Would that, do you think, have been God's heart? Yes, that's what you got to get. And if you can't get this heart of a loving father, then you, you, you will not be able uh, to fully sort of grasp what's about to unfold here. So there we go. <clears throat> Let's start reading in chapter 7 and let that undergird our reading. Okay, then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment, and I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Okay, let's, let's pause there for just a minute, and I want to flip to... Um, Habakkuk 3, verse 2. If you want to flip there, flip. If you just want to make a note, make a note. It's one of my favorite verses. Remember how I said I like paper Bibles? Guess how many dates I have next to this. So this, this is it right here in yellow. See? Guess how many dates I have next to that verse? Somebody give me a guess. More. Ten. Ten. Ten different years, ten different months, ten different days, the Lord has brought me to that, and I have made this little note. I was actually amazed. I was like, oh my goodness. But here's what it says. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. One of my favorite verses. It's hung in my office on a verse, on a thing before. <clears throat> So the first thing that I want you to begin to grasp and understand is this, this love of God that never stops, that always goes after, and he's bringing his people back to him. The second thing is a, a visitation of God's wrath is inexplicably bound within the context of his great mercy. And that's kind of what, what Habakkuk is even saying here. It's... it's um, it's, 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 it's so hard to even understand that God would bring such fierce judgment on the Egyptians without grasping that he is, he is desiring that all of them would turn and that all of them would repent. So <clears throat> let's keep reading there in, uh, in verse 4. He will not listen to you. We pick it up in 5. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. 
Now, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Uh, this, is so, uh, this verse is so important. We've talked about um, two sort of cataclysmic failures in Moses' life, right? If you've been here the last few weeks. If you haven't, you can go back and look them up online and listen to them. But the first failure, who remembers how old he was? He was 40. Yep, and what did he do? He killed the Egyptian. He did the right thing at the wrong time, which is the wrong... That's right. Okay. So then God sends him out to the desert, and God says, okay, when you're ready, let me know. Shub. He returned and repented. That's exactly right. Come on, Jocelyn. Okay, so then God sends him out to the desert, and there's this period where uh, you know Moses, who thought he was the man, who thought he was God's gift to humanity, is now tending somebody else's sheep. <laughs> no fun, right? No glamour, no glory. He's out by himself camping in the desert, and he stinks, and so do his sheep. And then God calls him from the burning bush, and then God sends him back, and Moses goes back, and God says to Moses, when you go in, say this. And we saw that Moses did not say what God said to say, did he? So we have these two sort of cataclysmic failures of Moses, one at age 40, one at age 80, and I want you to so get that after both of these failures, um, he's rejected by his people, and then he's also rejected by Pharaoh. So he is, it's like Moses' own failure has gone so deep within his own heart that there is this, um, there is this transformation that happens before we get to seven... Uh, uh, chapter, or, uh, chapter 7, verse 6, where it says, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. This verse was 80 years in the making. Okay? His, that level of obedience. And what happens from this verse on is that Moses actually becomes the prototype for all prophets in the Old Testament that are going to walk with God. But what it took God to get Moses to this point where he would actually do just as God commanded him. Most of us, if we dug into our own lives, there's things that we're probably doing that we know, God probably didn't command me to do this. Am I right? The way God shapes and fashions a person to get them uh, to this point, I think, is absolutely sort of uh, fascinating. And what we see from 7-6 onward is we see Moses walking in this almost um, kingly authority and then quiet confidence. It's really beautiful. Because every one of the interactions, and there is no, it's like there's no fanfare over this. It's just all of a sudden Moses takes his place as one who um, almost has no words other than God's words. I mean, from here on, this is what he, his words are the words God has taught him. Um, his acts are the things that God has commanded him to do. And, and his position is one of both humility, but this quiet confidence and authority of one who has been sent and authorized by God. Amazing. But the journey to get there, I think, is so painful. So from here forward, we, we probably take for granted um, what God had to do in the heart of Moses to get him there. So let's make some personal application. Are you in a tough thing at work, at home, in a relationship? Are you in a difficult spot in any area of your life? Take heart. God may be and is most likely using those difficult things to prep you for his purpose and his plans in and through your life in the days to come. Even if you haven't given your life to King Jesus. Yeah? That's who our God is. So this Moses transformation is absolutely beautiful. All right, let's keep reading. Um, verse 7, now Moses was 80 years old. I asked her who, who, if there was anyone 80 in here, and I think Bob raised his hand. Uh, Bob, you're 80. Eight? 88, okay. 
Moses was launched into ministry at 80. So, you know, Bob, you are not done yet. Yeah? Come on. You keep ministering. And I'm praying I'm spry like you when I'm 88. My goodness. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Okay, verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. That's weird, isn't it? That's crazy. Can you imagine if I came in here and took a staff this morning and I threw it down? And Can you imagine? Can you imagine what they'd say up and down the streets of Wilmington? Steve got that. <laughs> I mean, this is craziness. Take your staff and throw it down and it'll become a snake. Now, snake in Hebrew either means serpent, dragon, or get this, sea monster. No, no, no joke, no kidding, no exaggeration. Look it up yourself. It means serpent, dragon, or sea monster. Most likely this was a snake, but it's possible this was a bigger critter. Uh, in Pharaoh's time, they elevated actually the king cobra. Um, it's possible that this could have been a king cobra snake. There's a, there's a number of possibilities here. I can't get deep enough in the text to even fully um, tell you. But then we keep going. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did just as God commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned his wise men and his sorcerers. Now, if you look into the Hebrew there, wise men and sorcerers, these guys um, are probably practicers um, in the occult. Um, it'd be black magic. It would be, um, you know, it, it, it would be sort of the demonic arts is almost the way that, that reads in the Hebrew. So he summoned his wise men and his sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Imagine if that happened in here today. So I threw my staff down, and then two other people came up and threw their staff down, and all of a sudden we got a snake party happening on South College Road. And they went, it'd be bad, wouldn't it? They'd do all kinds of things people would say. I'm just teasing you all. Each one threw his staff down, and it became a snake, and Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to him, just as the Lord had said. Let me read to you 2 Timothy 3.8. Make a note of this. If you're studying the text, I think it's really important. 2 Timothy 3.8. Here's what it says. Just as uh, Janes and Jambres opposed Moses. Did you know that was in the Bible? Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as faith is concerned, are rejected. So, um, what Paul is calling on there is it's nothing that's in the canon of Scripture, but it's in sort of Jewish tradition. Um, and he is actually naming the wise men or the sorcerers who came and stood off against um, Moses and Aaron. So it, it's just fascinating to me. Um, and, and as you understand these guys, it's, it is, they, are, um, they begin uh, to um, actually imitate what God is doing. This is so important, guys. This is so important. Um, is let's, let's talk for just a second here. Um, in the Bible, uh, Satan was created um, as an angel. Did you know that? I'll give you a text reference if you want. I'm not going to go into it today. But Satan actually desired that he would be like God, and he was cast out of heaven. So is Satan equal to God? No. What is Satan? A created being. Somebody. That was good. He is a created being. So is Satan God's equal and opposite? No. 
Satan's a, an angel who has now fallen, um, who has become the leader of sort of the enemy hordes, and a, and a, and a third of the heavenly angels fell with him. Okay, so Satan um, is not the creator, but he is the imitator, okay? So you have Satan who uh, comes in, and you know it's like uh, Aaron throws the, his rod down, and it becomes a snake, then and Jonas and John Braze, or however you pronounce their name, they come in, and they throw theirs down, and they're simply imitating what God is already doing. Okay, so Satan is always an imitator. He is a counterfeit. And I would actually propose to you that as these 10 um, plagues happen, that part of what God is doing is he's systematically tearing down the counterfeit gods. Okay, so he's he's going through um, and he is showing that he is sovereign. He is creator. He is Lord over all. And and he is going through each of these Hebrew deities or not Hebrew, excuse me, Egyptian deities. And he's tearing them down and showing that he is Lord. Okay, so um, Satan is this um, is this imitator. So think about counterfeit money for a second. We don't use cash very much anymore, do we? But would there be a counterfeit um, dollar? If there wasn't a real dollar. No, who's going to make some? I mean, if a real dollar doesn't exist, why is anybody going to bother making a counterfeit, right? It's a, it's a fake of the real thing. So uh, it is, um, let's open this just, just for a, a second here. Um, why do palm readers exist? Did he say that in church? Uh, how about fortune tellers? What about astrology or horoscopes? Now go here just a second. Are some of those things real? Yes. It's the dangerous part. But they are an imitation of the real thing. You understand? That's why God is always so clear on, don't go to anything but him for revelation. 1 Corinthians 14.3 actually talks about the spirit of who knows. Prophecy. And prophecy is for edification, encouragement, and comfort. So there is a false, there is an imitation of the real thing. And it's really sad, actually, to me in Christianity because um, many Christian leaders, especially in America, have separated out the supernatural work of God because it gets messy and because imitations exist everywhere. Okay? So a long time ago, uh, there was a big argument between a guy named... um, Wesley um, and a guy named Whitfield, George Whitfield and and, um, John Wesley, they actually started the Methodist movement, which this building was built by a Methodist group, really fascinating. They led one of the Great Awakenings, but there was this big argument over whether or not you shut down um, strange manifestations and things that are happening in a Christian gathering. One of them said yes, one of them said no. Now here's the problem, is uh, do people, when they are touched by the presence of a holy and supernatural God, act weird sometimes? Yes. I wish they didn't. I really do. Yes, they do. At times when someone is learning even to operate in how I hear God and how I speak what God is saying, uh, are they immature and maybe even sinful? Yes. It's messy. Like, like the reason that we in America like to take bits of Scripture and cut out other parts of Scripture is we don't want to make a mess. And I I wish it was always clean and beautiful and wonderful, but the way God works is not always clean, and when Satan comes in, he does imitate, okay? Um, 
why we're just on this. Let's open this door a second. There's something that's been so divisive in the American church, and it happens in the first two chapters of Acts, and it's called the gift of, who knows where I'm going? Tongues. That's right. I think a better translation of that would be the gift of languages, not tongues. That, that, that's more true um, to the, the Greek text there, gift of languages. But here's the thing. Do you think God's first language is English? Well, y'all all laughed. Why? Do you think his first language is Hebrew? So here's the thing. I don't know what God speaks, but I assure you it's not English. Now, is he able to speak English? Yes. Is he able to speak Hebrew? Yes. Can he speak every tongue? And every? Yes. He created man. He created the earth. He created the whole thing. Can he speak it? Yes. But is that his native language? No. So for us to make assumptions that when the holy uh, presence of God shows up, that it's going to be easy and not messy is absolutely ludicrous. Now, here's what I'm not doing, and here's what you'll never get from me. We are going to elevate people who are making a mess and who choose to act weird and be weird just because they want to be weird. Okay? You're not going to get that from me. Here's the other thing, though. If you want to take a journey into knowing King Jesus, it is going to be outside of your frame of reference. It's going to be outside sometimes of what you can understand. It's going to be outside sometimes of your experience. And sometimes, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat and take a risk. That's what faith is. Okay? Some of you are going, this guy is crazy. I will follow Jesus wherever he goes. And I can't find one scripture from Genesis to Revelation that would indicate that the infilling power and the work of the Holy Spirit through King Jesus has stopped on the face of the earth. Okay. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15 says, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness who will end according to their deeds. All right, go there a second. Satan's servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Is it possible that there are pastors who are disguised as... Did he just say that? Yes. Do I think that every pastor out there is necessarily preaching and elevating King Jesus? No, not necessarily. And we tend to think, well, because there's a big crowd, there must be, you know, great theology. Not always. Not always. So what you see Moses and God embarking upon here is actually looking at sort of these counterfeit gods. Let's keep reading. But Aaron's staff swallowed up the other staffs, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them. Now, first plague. It's the plague of blood. It's really interesting because the first plague is the plague of blood and blood is also in the tenth plague. We're going to see it next week. But then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, and he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river, and wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. So where's Moses supposed to meet Pharaoh? Bank of the river. Okay, what's Moses doing, or not, excuse me, what's Pharaoh most likely doing on the bank of the river? Bathing. Bathing. What else is he probably doing? Maybe getting something to drink. Okay, there's one more thing he's doing. Anybody know? The Nile god was a guy called um, Hoppy or Happy. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, H-A-P-I. And, and uh, Pharaoh was actually going down to worship. 
Would he have also bathed and had some water to drink? Yeah, absolutely. But he's, he's going down um, to worship. So, so Moses is sent down to meet him in that place. Verse 16. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch it over, um, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and the canals, over the ponds and the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in wooden buckets and stone jars. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded uh, in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink it. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Here it is, verse 22. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. Counterfeit God. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. Now, when when, uh, Moses was a baby... What did Pharaoh order? Who remembers? Yeah, kill the boys and throw their bodies in the Nile, or just throw them in the Nile and drown them. So Pharaoh orders a genocide. If, you don't, if you've never read that, go back and read. I think it's Exodus 1 and 2. Uh, you can actually go back and listen to the message. But Pharaoh... Um, under the influence and power of Satan, said, I am going to turn the Nile to blood. And God said, look at the man that I raised up out of the Nile that you tried to turn to blood, and let me show you how to actually change the Nile into blood. This is God. This is Verse 23, instead he, Pharaoh, turned and he went into the palace and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water. So apparently these, the, the Egyptian uh, magicians took this, the water that they dug up and they went and they changed it to blood in front of, or changed it to something that looked like blood in front of Pharaoh. Now, verse 25. This is the plague of frogs. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. I'm going to skip down uh, verse 2. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with them. They will come into your palace, into your bedroom, into your bed, into the houses of your officials, on all your people, over your Uh, into your ovens, into your kneading troughs like your bread. The frogs will come up on you and your people, and they will be all over the place. Now, there's an Egyptian god. I'm not going to go through all ten plagues like this, but I want you to know there's an Egyptian god by the name of maybe Heket, H-E-K-E-T, Heket. Guess what his head looks like? A frog! Serious. So you get God who is stepping sort of out of eternity um, 
an empowering a broken man who has failed massively and has suddenly come to the point where he is so yielded and so surrendered that he goes, your will, not my will, your way, not my way, your time, not my time. And then God empowers him and he marches into Egypt with this silly little stick of wood. Two 80-year-olds and a stick of wood go up against the most powerful country on the, on the face of the entire earth. And, and God chooses the silly things and the foolish things and even sometimes the old things or sometimes the young things or sometimes the bald things to actually uh, step forth and go, I am going to glorify myself in and through this person so I can get all the glory. Yeah? It's absolutely this beautiful uh, sort of thing about who God is. Now, if you flip over to Revelation 16, I'm not going to flip there, but you need to make a note of this if you're going to study it, because in Revelation 16, you have seven bowls of God's wrath. Guess what they correspond loosely to? The seven plagues. Now, remember, we started this thing with God's wrath and the bookends of his mercy. Okay, so you even see the beginning of this story, and I would say the whole Bible is actually a love story. It's, it's a story of lost love and separation, and then it's a story of a holy God moving through Scripture um, in this supernatural exodus to find his kids and bring them home to him, um, and it culminates with us being restored to him in eternity. Some people, I hear Christians frequently asking, why isn't Jesus coming back yet or now? Why is he letting all this bad stuff happen in the world? All right, why? Think with me. Why? Why has Jesus not yet returned? Why are things happening in the world that are absolutely horrific? Time to repent. Somebody said it. Stacy, that must have been you. Let me read 2 Peter 3, 9 again. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is being patient with Pharaoh and with the Egyptians. God is being patient with us today. Will King Jesus return? Yes. Will there be a final conclusion? Yes. Will there be a total separation of Christians and non-Christians? And will some depart and go to hell and some depart and go to heaven? Yes. But God in his um, great bookends of mercy is desiring that not one person would perish and giving everyone as much time as he can, seeking them, uh, going after them, speaking to them, leading them, drawing them back to him. And listen to me, there are kids, um, I'm using kids sort of metaphorically, but like we're kids, people in the church, Christians who are lost inside the church, and there's other Christians or non-Christians who are lost outside the church. Just because you're sitting in a pew or a chair or a building with a cross over it or whatever doesn't mean you're in Jesus. What means you're in Jesus is when you've surrendered your life to him and you've asked him to come into you and live inside of you, and then the Holy Spirit fills you, sealing you, guaranteeing that Jesus is in you as you are in him. So I would actually say to you that there's this big, um, it's almost like this big lie that is injected by Satan in the very garden at the very beginning. This is so simple. But it's this big lie that God doesn't love you, God doesn't care about you, God is not interested in you, and all this bad stuff that is happening in your life is proof positive that what this big lie that you believe is true. Does that make sense? All right. Let me, um, let me plant this a minute. Um, and, and do two things, and then I'm going to try to tie this all together. Okay, um, we could go through the rest of this, and I'm actually not going to go through it. It goes from, play, uh, from frogs. Um, the, the next plague, the third plague, is a plague of gnats. The King James Version actually says that those are lice. Yeah, New King James also translates it the same way, lice. Um, and then we go from lice to, let's see, there's plague of livestock, 
There's a plague of boils. There's a plague of hail, where hail burns upon the earth like fire. Um, there's a plague of locusts. I mean, he ravages Egypt. Egypt is done. It is gone by the time God is done with it. The ninth plague is a plague of total darkness. The darkness is there for three days. How long was Jesus in the grave? How long was there darkness on the earth when Jesus hung on the cross? Three hours. There's so much beautiful Hebrew. I mean, it's just like the way God, it's amazing. Yet where the Israelites were, there was light. And then chapter 11, we're getting into the plague of the firstborn, and I'm going to deal with that next week. Now, back to this. I would define largely sin um, as uh, my will, not your will. Does that make sense? That's what I would say biblically if you look from Genesis to Revelation, essentially. Is, is sin an action? It's manifest in actions. Let's say that, okay? Um, that's why you can't change your actions and get saved. Okay, so if, if, if sin is saying my will, not your will, and what the, the Lord's Prayer actually says, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. So if it's your prayer, you say, my kingdom come and my will be done. And most of us will go, well, I'm not like that. Yes, you are. So am I. There isn't a day that I don't walk with King Jesus where he doesn't nudge my heart or do something or speak something, and I'm going, my will. When someone cuts you off in traffic, what do you say? <laughs> Woo, your will comes out. When your kids make you late to go somewhere or they disrespect you in the supermarket or wherever you're hanging out, what do you do? Bow up and up. my, mm, 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 mm. why did I start with? It's not about Michael and it's not about See, the faster we as believers get to the point where we go, your will and your way, the faster uh, you are ready to be filled with the power of God and used powerfully by him on the face of the earth. Okay, so a counterfeit God, let's define this also, is anything that you put your trust into um, to meet a need that only God should be meeting. Uh, let's do it another way. Um, a counterfeit God would be anything that you choose to, uh, it's almost like you're meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Can you go there with me? Okay, so that's a counterfeit God. Now, do we have graven images that we in America walk around and bow down to? Not really. Not really. Are there things, though, that we elevate as gods in our own lives, even Christians, because we're looking to them to meet our needs instead of God? Yes. yes. That's, the, that's kind of the, a, a dicey thing here. You know, we could talk about all sorts of things and go, you know, you may be, in fact, I'm convinced that a lot of the secret sin that people have in their lives is the meeting of a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. In other words, God wants to meet that need. God wants to show up in power. Uh, this is the great I am who has been seeking through all eternity to bring you home to him, and yet you've bought this big lie that Satan purported in the very beginning. The Israelites are still buying it in Exodus 7 and 8, that he doesn't care about you, that he doesn't see your pain, that he doesn't see your suffering, that he's not going to deliver you, and so you're not able to trust him and go, Lord, would you meet this need? I think one of the most powerful ways to begin to get free of any addiction, it could be a buying addiction, it could be a greed addiction. It could be a gambling addiction. It could be an alcohol addiction. It could be a pornography addiction. It could be a food. You, you fill it in. It's all of those things we're attempting to meet legitimate needs that God built into us in a way that is just sinful. It's simple. So the, I think one of the ways you begin to get free of any of that is to acknowledge, I've got a God-given need. Lord, would you begin to meet it? And not go into all these other things to get him to meet it. Does that make sense? Okay, now let me try to tie all this together. 
I'm going to get personal a second because I think it will help you. Amelia, our three-year-old, um, wears an insulin pump because she's a type 1 diabetic. So she, like her, she, her pancreas um, failed, organ failure. And so she has this little insulin pump that pumps insulin into her, got a little site on her bottom, and then there's another, another little needle site that is like a continuous glucose monitoring device. And uh, when everything works, it's great. Well, this week at like 2 a.m., I can't remember what day, but at 2 a.m. in the morning, um, her pump failed. And so we were up all night for a couple nights making sure that she was okay, and we had to switch back from this insulin pump to old-fashioned shots. So she's back to getting like four to six shots a day. And uh, in the context of that, here's a couple things she said. Dada, is Jesus sad that my needle hurts? Dada, are you sad that my needle hurts? I pray that Amelia will be healed, and I have no doubt that when she walks through the gates of eternity, she will be fully healed and restored. I also pray that she'll be healed here, and I'm delicately leading my little family down that road, because what if she's not? She looks at me and she says, Dada, what she's asking, dig a little deeper. What Amelia's asking here is, Dada, do you love me? Dada, does Jesus love me? Now go here a second. Go here. The big lie that the enemy is whispering in the ears of every human being is that God doesn't love you. It starts when you're an infant. It, it started in the garden. It's, the, it's this cosmic exodus from Eden to New Jerusalem. And it's when painful things or difficult things or sad things or hard things happen that we begin to go, no, 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 surely God doesn't love me. Surely God doesn't care about me. And suddenly we turn our hearts away from him. We harden our hearts and we say, we're going to do life without you because we don't trust you because you're not good. What I am attempting to navigate even with you as a church is the goodness of God cannot be determined on things that are happening. And I want you to even grasp that God's mercy or the goodness of, of God is the thing that contains even his wrath, even his discipline. Let me flip the metaphor um, with, with Amelia, or let me, let me at least give you one more part of it. We explained to her everything that happened, and um, I was giving her another shot. I gave her the shot, and she got done, and she, a few little tears, she stood up, and she gave me, she said, Dad, I want to give you a big hug. I didn't say that. She said, Dad, I want to give you a big hug. Give her a big hug. She whispers in my ear, Dad, I thank you. We're all crying, Right? Somehow this little girl knows that I, the pain that I'm causing her is for her own good. Now listen to me, church. 
if I could do anything with you today, it would be to actually ask you to take this step back from your own life and begin to look at the entire experience of your whole life from beginning to end and all the difficult moments and begin to actually see even the difficulty as in the context of God's great mercy and God's great love that he is actually pursuing you in every one of those things, that his heart is that you would never have to go through him, that his heart was actually that the Egyptians would even turn and repent, that his heart that there wouldn't be loss and there wouldn't be tears and there wouldn't be lack of health and, and there wouldn't be things like diabetic shots. But in the midst of them at this point, he is using them if we can trust him, not only for our good, but his glory on the earth. And that is the hardest like tension to, I think, walk out as humans. And I think more Christians are falling away right now from the church because we don't talk about the difficult things. And they, they're going, they've bought this lie that God doesn't really care. Listen to me. He so intimately cares that he is going to draw you and, and work through and in even every one of these difficult things. And will he return one day and set us free from all of it? Yes. yes. We're not there today because he still loves people out there and in here. Make sense? How is it that in a Western educated nation that the lie that my little three-year-old can begin to get in touch with is the same thing that causes us intelligent, old, successful, whatever people to fall away? Let's stand together. Buffy, maybe you'll come play. Thank you. Let's be still here for just a minute, even for our online gathering, whether you're at home or in a car or somewhere else. Be still with us for just a minute. Buffy's going to start playing. Here's what I want to invite you to do is to take a step back from your life and begin to go, where and how do I need to see God's gracious love? I also want to invite you to begin to look at some of the hard places in your own heart where you've judged him to be evil because of something he's allowed. I want to invite you to a repentance process. And that word's become almost negative in the church. It's so good because it just means agree with God. And I want to invite you into a journey where you would even begin to go, Lord, I might not like it. I might disagree with it. I might even hate it. But Father, I choose to trust you in it. Would you forgive me? Would you help me see as you see? Church, it's so important here. I'm not elevating suffering. I'm not elevating difficulty, but I am saying that if you can find the eyes and the heart of King Jesus in it, that he will so meet you and draw you and win you and then commission you to be a part of reaching a lost and broken world. Father, all across this auditorium, across the ones who are listening online, Lord, would you reveal to us those places where we've misjudged you? Father, would you allow us to trust you in them? Father, when we see expressions of things like the plagues that look like your wrath, would you allow us to even grasp them in the bookends of your 
wonderful mercy. And Father, in this room and anyone listening in, Lord, would you bring us to the end of seeking to meet very legitimate needs, real needs, in counterfeit ways. Father, I pray there'd be some in the room who today would turn from counterfeit meat and eating, counterfeit gods. And Lord, we exalt you, King Jesus, to your rightful place as Lord, as creator, as friend.